0: By the spring of 1776, George Washington had established his army's headquarters at New York, then a wedge-shaped labyrinth of streets and lanes at the southern tip of Manhattan Island. Bracketed by two tidal rivers, New York was the second largest urban center in America. It was also rapidly filling up with American soldiers as the city braced for an invasion by sea. Five miles to the south of the American encampment in New York, Lookouts atop Staten Island's Tote Hill searched the horizon for enemy ships. Three months before, Washington had formed his elite lifeguard, consisting of more than a hundred hand-picked men between five feet eight and five feet ten inches in height. They were all, in accordance with Washington's orders, handsomely and well-made, clean and spruce. As their title suggested, the lifeguards had been entrusted with ensuring the safety of His Excellency the Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. During the second week in June, with a British invasionary force expected any day, New York was rocked by the rumor that one of Washington's lifeguards, Sergeant Thomas Hickey, had conspired to betray the leader he had vowed to protect. Upon the arrival of the British fleet, Hickey and a few well-placed confidants planned to turn against the Americans. Hickey had been accused of the blackest of crimes, But the case had a startling legal nuance. How could a people who still called themselves British subjects condemn a soldier for remaining loyal to the king? Certainly the New York courts, being as yet held by authority derived from the crown of Great Britain, could not try the man. The only alternative was for Washington to try Hickey before a military tribunal. On June 26th, a court-martial board found the lifeguardsman guilty of mutiny and sedition. Two days later, Hickey was hanged on the common of New York before a crowd of almost 20,000 spectators. A week before the signing of the document that made it official, Washington had issued his own Declaration of Independence. On the very next day, at nine in the morning, the lookouts atop Tote Hill saw the first British sail. In about ten minutes, Private Daniel McCurtain recounted in wonder, the whole bay was as full of shipping as ever it could be. I declare that I thought all London was afloat. Over the course of the next few hours, the dozens upon dozens of sails coalesced at Sandy Hook, the strip of barrier beach at the tip of northeastern New Jersey, where ships traditionally anchored before entering New York Harbor. Once the ships had come to rest and the sails were furled, the many masts looked, to McCurtain's eye, like a wood of pine trees trimmed. Only three months had passed since the British General William Howe and his army of almost 9,000 soldiers had been forced to abandon Boston, when in a single night Washington managed to build a cannon-equipped fort atop Dorchester Heights. After retreating to Halifax, Nova Scotia, to recoup and rebuild, Howe was now back, with an even bigger army, and with New York squarely in his sights. It seemed almost unimaginable that King George and his ministry could have responded so quickly and with such force to the setback in New England. But as it turned out, King George was just getting started. A few days later, the wind shifted into the south, and the hundred or so ships gathered at Sandy Hook started up the channel toward the Narrows, the mile-wide choke point between Staten Island and Long Island, through which all ships sailing into New York Harbor must pass. At that moment, Henry Knox, the twenty-five-year-old commander of the Continental Army's Artillery Regiment, and his wife Lucy were standing together at the second-floor window of their temporary quarters at Number 1 Broadway. Henry had already decided that his wife and their young daughter must leave New York, but Lucy had stubbornly insisted on remaining by his side. Now, with a fleet of enemy warships and transports racing up the channel, both of them knew that she had indeed stayed too long. "'We saw the ships coming through the narrows,' he wrote to his brother William, with a fair wind and rapid tide, which would have brought them up to the city in about half an hour. You can scarcely conceive the distress and anxiety that she then had. The city in an uproar, the alarm guns firing, the troops repairing to their posts, and everything in the height of bustle. I not at liberty to attend her, as my country calls loudest. My God, may I never experience the like feelings again. Fortunately, the wind began to die and shift to the north. At first it looked as if the fleet was about to veer off for Long Island, but eventually the ships turned to the west and started to anchor along the shore of Staten Island. Once Knox realized that the immediate danger had passed, he returned to his quarters on Broadway and scolded like a fury at her for not having gone before. By early July, Lucy and their daughter were safe in Connecticut and Knox was still lamenting the extremely disagreeable circumstances of our parting.